All right. Welcome, everyone, for our amazing opportunity to learn about the challenges and opportunities in mental health care today. You are at the right spot, and I love seeing you all in the audience. Tara already trying the reaction button. So definitely for everyone else, go ahead and give that a try as well. So we know how to use that in uh, your lower bottom part there. There should be a smiley face that you can use to react. Give me a thumbs up. Nice. Right. Okay, so what we're going to do next is we're going to put all of our phones in the do not disturb mode if we are on do not disturb because um, when an incoming call arrives that can be disruptive. Also, I'm going to ask you beautiful people to share this room. The way you do this is by clicking the three, the three dots in the top right corner for most of you. And then you can share the room to your wall or you can message it directly to someone who can benefit from this amazing information. Uh, thank you so much in advance for doing that. That really helps promoting the event and making sure that a lot of people get this valuable, potentially life-saving information. Um, my... Name is Shankar Ponsolet and I run a healthcare marketing and PR agency here in San Antonio, Texas. And we have found that we can help our community best uh, by facilitating empowering conversations like the one we are having right now. Um, what we will do next is we'll understand how this goes today. So we have the panel the panelists speaking, and they will go one after another. Um, our main speaker will probably speak about 15 minutes, and then the rest of the panelists will speak uh, about five minutes, um, depending on how many panelists arrive. And then we have time at the end for your questions. So definitely um, write your questions down if you have them, and then at the end, you can raise your hand and we'll bring you up on stage. Um, make sure that whenever you are not talking, you are muted, um, especially if you are in an environment where there's background noise. As for me, I was um, a little bit nervous about today's event because I asked myself, well, how much do I know about mental health? And it dawned on me that I know quite a bit. I just had to really transpose myself back into my days where I was a law enforcement officer. This was before my immigration to the United States in 2011. I was what you could call uh, an FBI agent, uh, the, the, compar the comparable part of that, but also for a good amount of time, a, a quote-unquote regular street cop. And I was exposed a lot to... Uh, human trafficking and violent situations. And during that time, especially, I noticed that violence can always be avoided if you speak to the mental health aspect of the person. Um, especially that stuck, stood out to me in situations, for example, where 
me as the representation of the government had to go and conduct an arrest, very often, um, even when confronted with people who did heinous things, such as commit a murder, um, very often letting those people know that you understand the course of actions that led to them committing a murder. And that is not justifying what they did. That was not our place. But understanding how they got there and making them feel safe in the remaining procedure after the arrest. There's usually uh, 5 to 15 hours where there's like interviews. You need to go to places and find things, seize things. So that is a very tense time. And letting the person know that they are physically and mentally safe, that they're not going to be harassed um, or abused in, in any form or fashion, really always guaranteed for an amazing, uh, well, that's kind of a weird word in that circumstance, but for a nonviolent procedure. And that was very important. The other aspect that I realized how much mental health had to has to do with my life is really when I look at me as a business owner, as an employer, when uh, when I look especially at the younger the younger generations, uh, people working with us, um, guess what they ask for first when it comes to benefits and the freedom to uh, have time off when when they need it. It is yes, you're right. It is mental health. We have the the Generation Z and the and millennials who are very much aware of mental health and they place that at a very high high importance. So for me, that's really the um, the realization that it is just so important for our societies and our communities. But that's a, that's enough for my introduction. Um, our attendees today can expect a highly informative and engaging experience from Dr. Brenya Chumacy, a renowned professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Texas at San Antonio and a leading expert in the field of mental health. Holding a PhD in psychology, Dr. Brenya has dedicated her career to enhancing the mental health and well-being of individuals and communities. Her extensive background in psychology combined with her receipt of the United States President's Lifetime Achievement Award make her uniquely qualified to address the challenges and complexities of this critical issue. With her passion for human behavior and deep understanding of mental health issues, Dr. Brenya provides insightful perspectives and practical solutions to promote and improve mental well-being. So my question to you, Dr. Brenya, is what are the major obstacles to effective mental health care and how can we overcome them at the individual and systemic level? The virtual floor is yours, Dr. Tremacy. Thank you. I'm, I'm so thankful for being here. And I have to make a correction because you're so excited to talk about me. You, you gave my doctorate in psychology rather than law. So my doctorate is in law. When I was in 
graduate school again, my master's within mental health, the professor said, Brenya, we need you to support us with policy changes and so on because you are the law guru and you're in criminal justice. So my doctorate is in law and my master's is in uh, mental thank you. health. Thank you yes. for that correction. So, absolutely. So I like the audience to hear um, two, two fun but serious things to begin my, my piece of support and about the challenges and opportunities. And the first one is that when I, when I finished the graduate school part of my training many years ago, decades ago, I, I was an arrogant student in this way because I'm, I'm a generally humble person, but arrogant in this way. I thought labels, putting labels on people. I thought, um, why do we always have to do medicine? After all, back home, they use more herbs than anything. Why medicine? So then I became a clinician in the state of Maryland. And there I was quickly, quickly corrected. I learned fast. And I love learning as you, the audience does as well. I learned that client after client, patient after patient, because I had the most studied clinic, about 400 and some patients, they would come in and not know what's going on with themselves or not know what's going on with their family member who they love or can care for. And when I was able to diagnose with the treatment plan what was going on, say something like ADHD or say something like trauma-based um, issues or say depression, anxiety, oh my goodness, I saw one after the other say, that makes sense. I got help at last. I thought something strange was happening. I'm glad I came here from the support of my family or my best friend. And so as I saw that one after the other, every single client would just be happy. It's almost like with medical um, issues such as diabetes or cancer. The patient may not want to hear it, but once they hear it, they understand what's going on. The same with the brain, the same with mental health. And with the medicine, where I was arrogant about but why would the psychiatrist be given these medicines, right? I saw the same thing quickly. The patient would come back and say they're better. They're not maladaptive anymore. They've adapted to the environment. Things are going better. The social is going better. Sex is going better. I was like, oh, my goodness. So it humbled me fast. So I want to tell the audience that. Now, the second thing to help to the audience to see the reality of real-world outcomes is this. I'm going to go to a controversial topic on purpose. And the topic is about our religious leaders. So we, we know that religious leaders have authority. They learn it in that area. They have different gifts and skills. And one area that they tend to create a barrier for us is to encourage their person not to seek out mental health. So this is what I always say to them. And, and brace yourself because they tend to hate me the first year and then they love me the religious leaders. So what I say to them is this. Okay, you ready? I say, all right, all of us human beings are designed to be industrious. We are designed to want to have purpose, intentional purpose. We want to find that. We want to find our self-actualization, even though most of us pass away not knowing it. So we're all designed to be industrious. And, and so the dentist is sought after when one has an aching tooth toothache. The dentist is able to help. The teacher is able to help. The teacher is the first love of preschoolers or kindergartners. So within mental health, we have learned how the brain operates. We have learned the whole nervous system. 
We've learned the anatomy of the brain and how it's connected to every part of us. We've learned that the brain is a super, super computer. So then they listen to me and they're wondering, Why, what's she talking about? So then I say this, and this is when they get upset. So if you were on the highway or the byways and you had a car accident and a helicopter came to vac you to the emergency hospital to save your life and the surgeon is there ready to save your life and to help the trauma of your brain, then a month later you come back to your place, your religious place, as a leader, which you should be, and you say, a miracle occurred. I'm okay. Is that not amazing? So I ask you, did you stop the surgeon's hands from helping your brain and say, what religion are you? Did you do that? No, you didn't. So let's please respect mental health and mental health practitioners and brain surgeons and brain specialists who help. So now I start with this. Those are two barriers, which is what I do. So as I said, the religious leader begins to dislike me that very, at that point, but later on catches on and likes me after about one year. So in saying that, give me thumbs up so I can see it or thumbs down, whichever, so that I can help to tweak what I'm going to say for the next eight minutes. Thank you. And so in terms of knowledge, which is gained through formal and informal education, wisdom is the application of knowledge. That's the definition of wisdom. So we gain a lot of information, fast forward, within the formal and informal education we have, and we, we must apply it. And so what we know, being in law, being in criminal justice, being in psychology, what we know is that the healthiest people globally tend to have counselors. And counselors have different names. Counselors can be psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, therapists, analysts. They have different names, but they do the same work and they're qualified. The psychiatrist gives them meds. All right. So with saying that, the healthiest people have an analyst or counselor. The White House of our country has three counselors in place. They don't end up writing books. They're highly confidential. But guess what? The dregs of our society, and I can say that because I've worked with them as Shankar has in the prisons. I've worked in the prisons, professional staff. The ones who we know as the horrid psychopaths, right? They tend not to have counselors. And again, some of them were my clients in the prison, but also when they're on parole, say, after 20 years of being in a correctional facility, they come on parole, they come and see us because if they violate not seeing us, as we keep the community safe, then they have to go back to correctional facility. So I've worked with all on the continuum line. And they tend not to have counselors throughout the globe. The worst of the worst don't have counselors. So a barrier is, of course, you've heard the word stigmatization of mental health, is to destigmatize that and realize that what we already know but perpetrate it that the brain is the most important organ in the body, our super, super computer. It exists. It's important. Why doesn't it have a checkup every year? Like our somatic, somatic being our body. So we know this in the field, and the others on the panel will talk more about that. Well, we know this, and we know that those of us who are trained in this work have a continuum line. And no, most of us are not kumbaya. 
We're not huggy kissy. That's not what we do. But the general population thinks maybe that's what we do. We don't. We help. We support based on each patient and client. We support families. So, of course, those, those in the audience are learned and they know about the issues we have, say, with something like um, insurance companies, because insurance companies have a lot of authority in supporting the client or patient to be able to pay for their intervention, for their treatment. And insurance companies, which is when I was in graduate school, my professor said, Brenya, please talk on this, even lobby it for us, give me a law background. Um, insurance companies don't permit certain types of needed therapy. So, for example, today I was teaching my students about DID, dissociative um, personality disorder, which is treatable but definitely not curable because it's personality disorder. And insurance companies would not want us to dig deep into the primary, say, personality of the person because that would take like psychodynamic treatment plan, that would take like um, psychoanalytical treatment plan, and that takes a long time. It takes more than a year, more than two years at times to support the person to know who their primary is. That's a quick example, more of a sexy example within our field. And so then we are unable Although we would even want to pay for it for the client, because the client needs that, the patient needs that, we can't. We're not their friend. We're not their family. We're the mental health interventions. So we need to lobby and help for our wonderful nation, because we're talking about the U.S. The United States was the lead of the nations. And last thing I want to remind our audience is the U.S. is that experimental nation that every state is almost the size of a nation. The United Kingdom fits in the state of Texas with part of Texas left over, the whole United Kingdom. So the United States represents from the second last Olympics, they said there were 205 members of the Olympics nations. So it represents at least 205 nations. The U.S. is made up of 205 nations of peoples, and we are the forefront of breakthroughs in mental health, brain sciences. We're the forefront. So we're talking about an amazing nation with amazing knowledge and wisdom about mental health. But how about the other nations? The vast nations, all the way to places like Afghanistan or a place like Zanzibar or a place like Albania. We are at the forefront, and I am excited to hear the panelists share about our mental health interventions in our wonderful country, the U.S. The dominant culture in the U.S. has subcultures in it, too. So the last thing I'm going to talk about is something that's looming. And again, here comes my law and criminal justice aspects of me in mental health. What's looming is that we have a critical issue on our hands. It's an amazing nation. That is the most open nation, allows the most people to come here for refuge for good reason, and yet we do not have in place policy or plans for how to help the traumatized, those with PTSD, post-traumatic stress, those with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We don't have it in place, yet we, in our field of mental health, know this is looming. It's like a ticking time bomb. 
we must do something about this to help our people in the U.S., to help within our dominant culture and our vast subcultures, cultural competency, and mental health practitioners are trained to have cultural competency. If they don't have it, they're not permitted nowadays to serve that patient or client. The general public doesn't know this. So I think I've said enough, unless I should go on. But there's much more to share. I hand it over to the panelists. Amazing information. Thank you for this uh, amazing information here that really helps us understand the importance of mental health care and uh, before we continue, I'll, I'll let um, Reese Carey speak next. Um, but before we continue, I will ask you again to share the room. It really matters that we get this information in front of as many ears as possible in this case. Um, also, we have a very popular question, which is, is this being recorded? And the great answer is, I'm a tech geek, so I know how to record this. <laughs> and um, you all can go to healthcarespeakerseries.com and there is a way it's basically going to be uploaded as a podcast. Um, but at this point, I really want to hear from Risi because she is an emotional focus coach. And Risi, I'm just going to let you react to everything that Dr. Brenya said, because I am sure you have uh, a lot of good thoughts. Absolutely. And I am a therapist by trade <laughs> and then an emotional focus coach. But Dr. Brenya, whilst you were speaking, I was leaping for joy because I said, finally, somebody is tackling the elephant in the room, the religious leaders. And I wrote my paper my graduate school about mental health and the black church. <laughs> and believe you me, it is not an easy topic. It is very uncomfortable, but it is a must-have because of the influence they have on people. Somebody with schizophrenia going to their religious leader and they are telling them, we are praying on it. We are casting out the demon out of you. <laughs> Instead of, you know, because they don't know, they are limited in their knowledge and all these different dynamics. But the other thing is also the restrictions, the barriers, right? People, even people who have insurance, as you said, don't have enough. There are people who are capped maybe at six sections of therapy and then your, your hands are tied and maybe the person has a complex situation. And so as you move through all these different places, I was like, this is a great way to handle this complex you know, subject. But what is really interesting is that, yes, we are having this conversation in the United States. But unfortunately, there are places in the world that are not even close to collectively begin to dive into this subject. And COVID came to tell us that this is important and COVID happened to all of us. So I, I, I lose sleep sometimes in reference to people who don't have access and what that means for a global, you know, nation, global economy and all the different things. Because what you talk about the somatic and it's true when we are bleeding or when we want a day off for the fact that 
I have a muscle ache. It is understandable. But when my brain is hurting, when nobody can see what it is, and even I don't understand what is going on, how do we even proceed? You know? So yes, loosely, we are here. You know, I can call my my supervisor and say, I need a mental health day. And they understand. And, you know, thank, you know, thankfully, I'll get that day off. But there are places in the world that don't have this conversation. And let me throw in a, a little humor he, right here on, on, on um, you know, LinkedIn. You know, my post is all about wellness, well-being and all that. Do you know somebody back-channeled me and said, maybe you don't belong to this platform? Because I wasn't talking about maybe marketing and, you know, all these different things. What I was talking about could cannot be touched off, or, you know, or is not tangible. So they said, I don't belong here. And I channeled them back. I said, hey, guess what? Maybe you are struggling to meet your basic needs to a point where you are not self-actualizing. And that's okay. So I love the way this discussion is going. And to, you know... Dr. Branya, uh, our host Shankar, and everybody else, I am grateful that you know I can be part of this discussion. And you know, I hand over the microphone. Awesome. Thank you, Risi, for your perspective and your contributions. I want to change gears a little bit. Let's hear from one of our gentlemen here on stage. Um, David, you are a um, doctor program liaison and i know you always have a strong connection to the um to our population here in san antonio and you are also an ordained minister so <laughs> i think it is uh, very important to let you give your perspective david absolutely hello everyone uh very lively discussion i like this um one of the difficulties in the religious realm <clears throat> is that we have a tendency to discount medicine or discount the spiritual. And in my experience, especially coming out of COVID, uh, I mean, the, the, the quickest torture technique the military uses is isolation. And that's exactly what happened to a lot of people. So coming out of that, there, there are a lot of people that suffering with depression. I mean, I, I have no medical background at all, so I won't even use the right terms, but they're struggling. They're struggling just to get up and go to work. They're struggling. You know, it, I think before COVID, a lot of it was, was financial, struggling financially. And I think a lot of people now that I deal with, they're, they're just having trouble getting out of bed, going to work. They're having trouble just doing normal functions that um, in the past they just did. It was just, I guess you call it muscle memory. You get up, you shower, you do everything in a certain order, you go to work. Um, but I, I do believe what, what's happening in my experiences, I do believe there, there are people that what happens to them is, is something in the brain, and whether it's chemical, whether there's something malfunctioning, which I'm not a doctor. I don't understand that. And I never discourage anyone. When I talk to someone who's struggling, I, I tell them to go to the doctor first and, and really get checked out to, to try to make sure there's nothing physically wrong. But I also know in my experience on the spiritual side of the house, what can happen is a person can be struggling with something, something triggers something, you know, traumatic something from childhood, they're struggling with something, 
and on the spiritual side of the house, then the enemy, which I call it out, the enemy's the devil, um, then on the spiritual side of the house magnifies that. So he increases the intensity spiritually of what's wrong physically. And, and that's why I always encourage anyone I deal with, it's it's both. It's it's the physical and it's the spiritual, because I believe we are physical, spiritual beings. And, and I think if we don't work from both of those perspectives on, and not every person who's struggling or has mental illness has got a major spiritual battle. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I do believe the two work together. And, and I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 66 years old. I've learned a lot the last 20 years that I thought I knew before that I really didn't. But I do think that there can be an old school religious thing like everything is spiritual. And if you're having problems with depression, it's all about the devil. And I, I, I don't, I don't pick that up and say that because I understand there is the physical part of it. But at the same time, I encourage all of my medical professionals, whether you're religious or not, um, to, to really re realize that the spiritual dimensions that are involved uh, with some people that are having problems and, and the spiritual dimension just, just magnifies it, even makes it worse than it is. So I, I tried to tiptoe around this in a way where I didn't come across wrong. I hope I did that, just sharing my heart with, with everyone on the panel. But it's a very, very, very complex problem. And, and I my, and, and my team, we're, we're seeing more mental illness in teenagers than I, I've, I've ever seen. And that's really complex. So I'll, I'll surrender my time here. But thank you for the opportunity. Oh, David, thank you so much. Uh, you are a, my, a man of high integrity. I look up to you and I think you did a wonderful job um, combining the physical and spiritual aspects of this conversation. And I'm looking forward to who's coming next, which is Tara. Uh, she is an emotional intelligence coach, has um, a lot of experience in this field, actively and passively. So Tara, what are your thoughts? Oh, wow. Well, first and foremost, thank you to you and Andrea for inviting me. I love, love, love this conversation for so many reasons. So let's back up a little bit. My mother actually, um, Dr. Brenya, has DID and in Canada. I'm from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We don't have a lot of professionals um, that understand the the depths of disassociative identity disorder. One day my mom went to take my brother for a coffee. She got out of her car. She was hit by a transport trailer truck, which had hit the car and knocked her under the car and dragged her across the parking lot. And she had hit her head and they diagnosed her with DID. So now my beautiful Cancerian mom had 30 plus personalities, some of them ranging from a six-year-old crawling on the floor to all kinds. One was taking all of her meds and trying to kill herself. It was, it is, that is trauma in itself for the people that are in the family. So when you had mentioned that, my, my heart sank for a minute because I have had a long journey. I actually went out of my way 
to read the DSM about four times from front to back um, so that I could learn how to help my mother. I do not have a PhD, but I was on a mission (laughs) to help my beautiful mother. And it is a big issue and it is across the globe, uh, mental health um, care, and there's the lack of it. And just coming out of this pandemic, when people felt so isolated, so alone, so scared, so frightened, everything on the media was death, 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 death. It is no wonder that children here in Canada, especially young boys, ages 18 to 21, are taking their own lives. I'm an emotional intelligence coach, um, but I come from a long history of trauma. I was trafficked when I was 14 for several years. I have 18 attempts of suicide under my belt on top of what happened to my mother. And I wrote a best-selling book. And now I get to travel around the globe and teach people how to reconnect to self. So David, I love that you're bringing up this spirituality component because I do believe that a lot of it is just disconnection from self. And it happens when we're really, really young. And I'm going to say something that maybe a lot of people will kind of shun at possibly, but through a lot of my work and a lot of my healing, and it's going to perhaps be an astonishing statement, um, but the fundamental problem doesn't necessarily lay in the fact that people are sexually abused or that you were beaten or that you were abandoned as a child or that your parents couldn't love you. All of that is actually just a result of you losing connection to self. And I know this because of the people that I work with that, um, have just figured out a different path in life, and it's so opposite than what lies within. And it's it's a it's a path that takes away from, you know, giving themselves you know self compassion and love and kindness that they express to everybody else around them, but they don't give it to themselves. And so I run these beautiful workshops with people that have complex post traumatic stress disorder, which I was diagnosed with and high functioning anxiety and clinical depression. And now doctors interview me and ask me how I worked myself out of that and how my mom has not had an episode in six years. So I feel there's a lot of missing components when it comes to Western medicine and Eastern medicine. And there are great doctors out there. I will never take away from the incredible doctors and therapists and counselors and psychologists that really pour their heart and their life's mission is to help people um, really truly lead a better life, a healthier life, and one of joy and fulfillment and purpose. So I love being on panels where we all come from different um different places and different uh, experiences in life. And I think that's what we're all here for. It's for us to all share our experiences and for us to all find this beautiful collaboration with each other where we can help everybody grow. So I'm super excited for this conversation. I love everybody's shares so far. And thank you so much for having me here, Shankar. Uh, thank you, Tara. You know what? I am I'm very proud of today's event, today's room, because... It is, it is not easy to get what I call a 360-degree perspective on a topic. And I feel we have we definitely achieved that today. And, and that, to me, really brings the most change in the world. Because what I have noticed in our work in public relations and marketing is that no matter what perspective you express, there's always a nugget for someone that matches with your perspectives and that and that helps them and that is really 
our main priority in putting up this event. So um, with that said, we're going on. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of questions and reactions that want to be given, and you all will have that opportunity after our next speaker, Dr. Packard. Um, so definitely write down your thoughts. Be prepared to raise your hand. Also, the panelists on stage, um, if you want to react to each other, that is going to be possible here very soon. Um, so, Dr. Packard, you are a medical doctor. And um, I, my question to you is, uh, how can mental health services be made more available in primary care? And what can doctors do to help their patient, patients access mental health care? Those are real good questions here. Um, I first off, uh, Shane, can you uh, raise your hand if, or a comment if you can hear me? Or I guess yes, I, I can hear you. Up? I can okay. hear you. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I don't have a little level meter or anything like that. Um, okay, a lot has been said. First off, I and uh, I just want to give thumbs up to uh, to David and Tara and and. Uh, Brynja and all those who have commented, I have just wholehearted agreement. I wanted to do like a thumbs up like every other sentence, but I didn't want to like fatigue <laughs> you know, <laughs> notifications here or blow up your thing. So I really do uh, appreciate that. Um, I do see obstacles. I really, really do. And it's, yes, it's in the church. I've even had a family member, uh, you know, say, I think depression is just the devil. And, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> there's a, a lot of righteous people that have battled with depression and a lot of really bad people <laughs> that don't. Um, you know, I do think a connection with yourself and connection with God, both and connection with your surroundings and not be in isolation. It's just we are creatures that are designed for this. We are designed, even if you're looking from an evolutionary model, we are meant to be in families and tribes. And that's kind of what we're meant to do. Um, that's how we function. That's how our brains function. And we don't understand our brains very well. We're continually finding new therapies and things um, all the time. And uh, I want to say for clinicians, um, well, for the system, Access to mental health is hard. When I say that, I'm not talking about getting a prescription for Lexapro. If you see a doctor, yes, you can get an antidepressant. I'm talking about the mindset that that's what you're here for. That's what the patient's coming in to see me for. Because if you look at um, one of our common references that we look at is called Up to Date. It references lots of different articles and journals, and it's uh, you know peer reviewed by a whole panel of physicians. Um, and I consider it fairly authoritative and reliable. The reason I'm saying that is because when you look up mental health problems in up-to-date, um, the recommended therapies are mental health counseling. This is uh, the people that we've just heard from today uh, that don't prescribe a pill. Uh, here I am, a doctor that prescribes pills, but if you look at the evidence to other doctors, it's not necessarily a pill. And if you do compare it, uh, just for the common things like like anxiety or depression, it, you're talking in one hand, you can prescribe a medication that usually has side effects. And on the other hand, you can do some counseling that typically doesn't have nearly the same side effects, if, if at all. Um, you know, I think it would be malpractice almost not to prescribe the medication or the treatment or the therapy that doesn't have as much side effects. And so I just don't see a patient with anxiety or depression without first addressing, you need to see a mental health counselor. That's my recommendation, number one. Now, unfortunately, in our world, access to that is not as good through time or money. 
um, which is often the case for my patients. Uh, at least half of them don't have health insurance. They have a membership plan with me. Um, and some of them do, but they just don't know much about it. Um, and so it's just, you know, an awareness of what patients do have access to. And I think as clinicians, just looking at the evidence and for something like PTSD, first line therapy is not a drug, you know, it's, it's cognitive behavioral therapy, it's EMDR, it's, you know, uh, seeing a mental health counselor and seeing what they can do for you. There's a lot of things out there. So I think one thing clinicians can do, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, and whatnot can realize the huge, huge role in mental health counseling and encouraging that for your patients. Uh, you know, um, so many times, I think looking back in the last 20 years of my practice, um, you know, I didn't encourage that all the patients say, you know, you're rushed for time and just the time it takes to discuss this and even realistically look at some referral options, I think would be hard. But I would like to see a closer association with mental health professionals and primary care doctors. Psychiatrists already know this and they already use this. There's, you know, lots of psychiatrists already office next door to, you know, a psychologist or some type of mental health counselor, or at least have a referral patterns. Um, but primary care physicians, I would say usually not. They are not close together. They don't have, you know, close referral patterns. And um, they're really, I would like to see a closer linked relationships like we do with all the other specialists that we commonly refer to. So I think that's one thing. I mean, yes, in the religious setting, there's definitely some huge obstacles that we need to overcome. And I think in the public, there needs to be less ashamed of talking about my anxiety, my depression, my PTSD, you know, or disassociative personality disorder. I think, um, you know, people are embarrassed. You know, um, I was at a, a health conference where a, an employer was talking to their employees about the free mental health services they will have for the upcoming year. But they couldn't say the phrase mental health. They used things like, oh, you're just, you know, if you're just feeling stressed and, you know, she just kept using the word stress and emotions. And it took me a long, long time to figure out what she was talking about. What she was talking about is mental health and that this service was offered through an online service for free for, you know, hundreds of employees. This is huge. I think everybody should see a mental health counselor once a quarter at minimum. You know, and I, I think it's just the reason that the salesperson had to talk about it this way is because unfortunately, our public, you know, we're ashamed, you know, and we do need to get over that, uh, you know, and let's just call it what it is. And so um, and I think that's part of the reason that in, in the religious realm, we try to find a reason for it besides, um, you know, you're sick. You know, I don't, if you break your leg, are you embarrassed about it? You know, <laughs> no, let's fix it. Um, or, you know, if you, there, there, anyway, I could go on about that one. But yes, in the public arena, there needs to be less shame. And that can be with each and every one of us of looking down upon people because they have trauma. Because, hello, we've all had trauma. I don't care how wonderful situation your family was. I mean, I grew up with a big family, loving mom, loving dad, both at home single marriage, you know, and we've all had trauma, all 13 of us. And uh, most of my brothers and sisters, for some reason, it took us like 20 years to figure it out, but we've all found benefit with mental health counseling. And so it's just everybody is dealing with it. And so I think 
in the public, we need to help personally, one-on-one in our relationships, being non-judgmental as physicians, talking to patients about it and being very open and honest about how common this is, like nearly 100%. Uh, and also developing as physicians, I think, uh, and, and I'm speaking for docs and PEs, PAs, um, that we need to develop better relationships with mental health counselors, know who they are, know where they are, um, develop relationships with them, invite them over to the clinic, um, and uh, develop those referral patterns. Thank you, Dr. Packard. Um, you know, if it ever doesn't work out with your medical doctor career, you are hired as a host for podcasting, okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> you got me worked up on a roll. Right? My, my wife, she's done, you know, sorry. But uh, my, I've, I've had, this is personal for me because of the family members that I've seen this huge benefit. Um, and my wife finished a course of uh, EMDR and then she did some, um, it's some hypnosis and then she did, now she's doing. Uh, actually, has a, a coach. Technically, it's labeled as a, a you know a life coach. But a lot of the therapies are identifying your emotions. How are you feeling today? Keeping a log and these exercises, mm -hmm. you know. And so, yeah, my wife is going through coaching right now. But there is a lot of overlap, and 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 I think both aspects of coaching versus mental health counselors, even though they're labeled separately, they um they can hit a lot of the same issues. And I think it's nice to go at it from different angles. Um, in that way. But yeah, this is personal for me. So I appreciate the compliment, Shakes. So. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I understand. So on stage two, you see uh, Andrea Ferguson, who is my partner in business and life. She's the chief operational officer of our company. And I hear her speak a lot about mental health, especially when she is worried about the mental health of our uh, employees. Uh, but Andrea, I asked you in our chat, do you want to share your perspective? I don't know what you have in mind, but I know it is important. So Andrea? Thank you, Shankar. This conversation is important. Everybody up here on this stage is important. And um, to our listeners, I know we'll leave a little bit of time for Q&A or comments that people want to make. I, I think this conversation would not be the same with any one of these people missing because as Tara said, we all come from different backgrounds and walks of life and different perspectives as Shankar is pulling it all together too. And I, I really kind of just wanted to share my personal experience and insight and think about the intersection of spiritual and mental health. And I, I, I think that, and without alienating anyone who doesn't believe in spiritual anything, because there's also those people who are probably listening Simply put, the way that society was structured, we are not meant to live alone, and this has been mentioned, but I think that there has been too many people taking on roles that don't belong to them. So your pastor isn't supposed to be your teacher, isn't supposed to be your parent, isn't supposed to be your primary care physician and your mental health uh, doctor and your and, 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 and. But for whatever reason, sometimes... And a lot of it is sometimes, um, at least when I think specifically of the Black church, I think of historical reasons why there was a reluctancy to uh, encourage people to go to mental health providers. Some of that is just, and not even just the church, but families, because there's backlash and there's repercussions and not just shame. There's like, now you can't excel. Now you can't have an opportunity 
to have a promotion or, and there's certain things that are stuck on your record and different things like that. And, and we've gotten better over time, just as human beings for everyone, no longer pigeonholing people, not, um, you know, getting better with just HIPAA and, and all of these different things and, and exactly how we're going to move people from one specialty to another and still maintain confidence and all of these kinds of things. Because that that is also a barrier, just knowing that, okay, I'm literally going to have less opportunity in the city that I live in, especially if you're living in a small town where everybody knows everybody knows everybody. So you don't even have to uh, be breaking or violating any kind of policy. You can just know the people that know the people that are seeing your daughter or your husband or yourself or whatever. And I think there has been, like I said, so much backlash where it's like, especially if you're not the one controlling the access to resources like job opportunity or different you know, ways to obtain health, uh, I'm sorry, wealth or um, just different things that we need to, to function and to live well, then you're going to be, you're going to think twice and thrice. And then the other piece of it is just really not knowing where to go or to get quality mental care. Um, so I think there, there is something to be said and Dr. Packard really hit on it that you just, I think it, it begins with communication and, and knowing who and how and, and taking the extra mile as well, like just going the extra mile and saying, all right, I know this is a little bit out of the way, but not just leaving people hanging that are are coming to you for health um, for help, or when you can identify certain symptoms that need to have maybe a further assessment or something like that. Because I'm not a mental health professional and I wouldn't be able to say X, Y, or Z. But keep asking questions and go to safe places and break out of that stigma that has been really kind of dropped on us whether it be our family, whether it be churches, and then also not forsaking your place of worship. If you are going to a synagogue or a mosque or a church, um, whether it be going to grandma's prayer closet or whatever it is that you do, that is a huge, huge avenue for getting yourself together mentally. And then of course, when it goes a bit deeper beyond that, then you need to incorporate that as a part of your healing process. So I think it all works together. There's a, a piece of cultural competence. There is um, understanding how to be inclusive and maybe identifying different patients that come in, I would imagine, that don't express symptoms the same way. Um, there's conversations that need to be had. There's There's a whole lot that needs to happen, but... I think the first breakdown to the barrier is ourselves and not turning a blind eye to things that you know is problematic because I can say that um, having family members that have had mental health problems, I even questioned, well, if I do go forward with this, what are the ramifications? Because historically, like I said, that's what we've had to do. We've had to think about what happens if... You know, is this person going to get their kids taken away from them and then never be able to have a shot to get them back? Is this person going to be um, mentally institutionalized when it shouldn't be happening to them? There's so much fear around things, but you just have to ask questions and you have to find a way to overcome the fear so that people can get the help that they need. Um, and so, yeah, I have really not said anything at all. I don't think... <laughs> personally about, I said I was going to share my perspective and instead I, I gave you something different, but it's kind of, there were, there were a lot of different people in the room and so many different valuable, valuable insights and perspectives. So I just, 
um, I see that time is winding down. So I'm going to mute myself. Thank you all for listening. (laughs) Thank you, Andrea. Folks, I have to tell you something funny. You know, we have a chat on the side. And Andrea always messages me, all right, you got to stay on time. You know, got to slow this person down. It's next. And it's time for this. And now what is she doing to me? I have to slow her down. <laughs> Take your own advice, Andrea. <laughs> all right, I will do. All right. So um, I promised our audience they could ask their questions. And I want to get to that part now. So while you muster up your courage to raise your hand, and please do so because you have so much knowledge on stage. Um, Please also, very important, follow the people on stage, reward them with your attention, give them a follow because they have taken time to produce value here. It is not necessarily easy for some people to speak on a stage like that. So please follow the people uh, that resonated with you. So do I see any questions from the audience please raise your hand and then you can state your question if you want if you have it to a specific person you can say that if it is just for the entire panel you can do that as well so while you think of your questions and while you bring up your courage to maybe do that because i don't see a raised hand yet i will uh, open it up uh, for the panel to react to each other um We do that popcorn style, as we know from Clubhouse, and that means the first person goes. So whoever is ready to react to someone, please do so. Um, I would love to. um, This is Brenya. So I'd like to go to the spiritual part. So yes, as we talked about the religious leaders and as a possible barrier, they could also be a great opportunity, like Shankar had said. This is about um, challenges, barriers, and opportunities. So it'd be wonderful if we could create a different type of thing that I haven't seen, where where the diverse religious leaders of all types—Buddhists, Hindus, um, Christians, Muslims, um, all types—could possibly show their humility and get training in this area, but in a way that's creative. And of course, I think on this panel, we are all um, spiritual people, um, but I can talk for myself. My spirituality as a Christian is extremely important to me. And I learn every year more and more about things that were my blind spots. And I love doing that. So back to the fact that I had mentioned that we go to the dentist when we have an aching tooth to get it extracted, possibly, or filled somewhere else. And so we must come to the brain scientists, which is us. We must come to the mental health practitioners, which is us, just like one would go to the dentist. Now, now really quickly, Shankar, I, I have clients and patients in the past that I would advise them as they're talking and as they're weeping and they want in self-actualization and a career path, I would advise them not to go through insurance based on their affluence because they're with, say, uh, industry such as you've been in, Shankar, that um, would not look favorably upon their disorder, right? And mm-hmm. it's worked very well for them because they continue with treatment 
and yet get the promotion and the career. So these are things we have to work on, definitely. But these are real-world outcomes that still exist today. And I hand over to the next panelist. Wait, I get to say, ah, thank you so much. <laughs> we need advocates that have this kind of critical thought and go that extra, you know, just the extra step that becomes an extra mile and makes a difference in people's lives and it still allows them to get the treatment that they need. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, we actually have a, a late comma panelist that I do uh, value her voice and thoughts a lot, Kelly Pickett. Um, it's your turn. Thank you, guys. Sorry for running so late. But um, from my perspective as a business owner and insurance agency owner, um, we when we look at building and incorporating plans, we make sure that um, mental health and financial health are hand in hand because really um, those two things are so, uh, they just go hand in hand because when one is off, it can directly affect the other. Um, when you're in a state of poor mental health, depressed, you know, whatever that looks like, it can turn, you know, it impacts the decisions that you make. So in your stressful or in your bad place that you're in, you can turn around and do more harm. The same with in reverse, when you're experiencing financial struggle struggles you know that then puts this huge stressor on your life in all different aspects so when we build the plans that we have we try to and we've we've done a very good job of incorporating tools in those plans to help you have access to mental um wellness and behavioral help, whether it's a coach or a psychologist or a mentor, you know, a, a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist, and the same with the financial piece. We put you in the presence. We give you the tools to be able to be coached and talk through your problems and come up with solutions. So that's one of the things that we find are important and we were very cognizant of um, when we designed our equal care plans just because we want to make sure that everybody's taken care of so it's not just getting yourself to the doctor it's like a whole body and whole health experience to make sure that you're taken care of thank you the broker that gets it i mean i can i can completely affirm that when when you have financial troubles the the mental health part is also impacted and vice versa. I mean, I can think of countless examples from my law enforcement days where that was definitely the case. Uh, we have a audience member who came up on stage, uh, Andile or Andile, um, from the beautiful city of Johannesburg, South Africa. Welcome to stage. Uh, unmute yourself, Andile. Um, good Evening, everyone. Okay, well, it's evening in South Africa, and uh, thank you for having me on the stage. I hope everyone can hear me. Yes, we can oh, hear you. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much. Um, it has taken me so much courage to actually raise up my hand. 
but I have finally um, worked up that courage. This topic is very close to my heart because, um, well, for the longest time, I have always been passionate about mental health, but also I recently have become myself a mental health care user. And so I... I think I resonate a lot with all the things that are being spoken of in in this discussion. And I I tend to find that the most pressing issue um, when it comes to mental health is the stigma that surrounds that that surrounds that issue. I hope um, I think everyone else can can agree with me that there is a whole lot of stigma that surrounds mental health issues. It's still very taboo for anyone and everyone to be able to to talk about their challenges or to be able to receive well um, when they talk about their um, mental health challenges. I myself, like I've said, that um, as a mental health care user, I I I have experienced that, and you find that people, um, as much as you you will learn and you will educate yourself about mental health and you probably find yourself in a position where you are ready to talk about these things to make other people aware of these things and that they are they are real they are happening but you will find that people um, shy away from that from those kind of topics they do not necessarily want to talk about them. Um, once you start raise um, any issue around those things, people will start um, kind of like, um, you know, turning their heads down and looking down and, you know, seeming all ashamed, especially in in the workplaces. Um, one, my major issue has been with the workplaces. So I think my question um, is around how, do we raise awareness um, and try to push back the stigma that surrounds mental health issues in the workplaces? Because I think that is where also most of the traumas that we have or traumas that we experience um, are at. They are at, the, at our workplaces, the people that we work with, um, our managers, our anyone and everyone, you know, it's easy to re-traumatize each other when we don't know what we are dealing with at a particular time. So I I find myself being ready to make that awareness in our workplaces, but you find that the stigma is still very there. There's this big wall that stands between, um, let's say, leaders in the workplace and the employees. And so you find that as much as you are aware and you're educated and you are um, eager to help other people learn about those things, but there's that, there's that wall. So my question is around there. And also thank you for all the contributions from the panelists. Um, we are learning so much from this kind of conversations. And my hope is that um, we can start opening up and start accepting this as as a thing that that um, that exists. Great question. Thank you so much and congratulations for bringing up your courage and coming on stage because you are asking the questions that lots of other people have and they didn't find the courage. So thank you so much. Um, before we answer your question, I know we have busy professionals on the panel. If you need to leave because we have reached time, please feel free to leave now. We all understand. For those of you who can stay 
and want to answer Andile's uh, question here, now is your time. Who goes first? Um, unless I, I let someone else go before me, because I've already spoken, so I'll pause, but I have a lot to say about what this wonderful Andale has shared with us. Yes, please go ahead. I should go ahead. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So, do you, know, do you know, you're doing it already, you're advocating, and I know the audience is going to send forth this podcast, and I know we do that already. So I thought of a different thing, because I like to do that. So the word bully needs to go viral. So with the COVID pause, I intentionally took my commute time and rolled it into critical thinking to support and help us. So that's why I'm excited about you coming forth and saying this about the workplace. So because of what you said, I say this, use the word bully rather than abuser. And even the panelists could do that too, because we've been using the word abuse and abuser for decades upon decades, um, nonstop. And I've led abuse groups and with particularly the, the male gender, the abuse groups have to have police officers standing by for different reasons. So it's pretty intense. And I've been in a correctional facility reluctantly, but 10 hours of my clinical work per week was there. So I have found with that expertise that the word bully is something that our wobbly earth needs right now. Once you have the language and the communication and can send it viral everywhere and with posters in the restroom like we do with human traffic people. Bully, bully, bully. It sort of strikes the abuser in the workplace and at home mm -hmm. in a different way. It's a new word that should be sent viral. So that's my input. Of course, there's much more, but that's my input. Thank you for coming forth. Thank you. <laughs> So I would like to also say congratulations for your courage. It's it's beautiful to be able to get up and speak and, and find your voice. So I want to say thank you for that and congratulations. But I also would like to echo what's being said is I think it starts with self-advocacy. And then I think with there, people are heard. And and a lot of times, and I'm going to use my daughter as an example, um, because it's the, it's it's a very recent thing that's happened. Um, she's always been taught from you know a young age through the school system advocacy and self advocacy. So I feel like for her, it's it's easier for her to communicate those things somewhat as she gets older and she's in college now. So as she enters these new chapters in her life, I feel like at that age and what they were taught, they're being taught to be more vocal about, about what they need and what is required for them to be healthy mentally, physically, emotion, you know, emotionally, all of those things are, are being taught to our, our young ones. And I think that that's getting better. I also think that this huge surges of the importance of mental health that's happened over the last several years in the workplace. And by no means am I saying it's enough, but it is the fact that it is actually being recognized here in the States for us. Um, and being pushed in the 
employer world is is a big deal. Now, I do realize though, what you're saying that there are still stigmas, but I think that if we can generate positivity and encouragement of our experience in the workplace, I think that that will help promote at a very small level. So in small steps in your in your personal sphere of, of influence that, that you can communicate the positivity of seeking help and achieving in, in your goals for mental wellness, that that, that begins to loosen that stigma. And um, the other thing is I, I, I still, even though I say that we've done it with the young kids, I still don't think we've done enough um, because like my daughter was in a group discussion about, um, it was just a peer discussion and she was talking with her peers and she said, they were talking about struggles with COVID and, and cause they were all in, in high school during that time. And, you know, the conversation was, she, it was her turn to discuss. She says, well, the first thing my mom came to when we were at an impasse was, well, who do you need to talk to? Do I need to, to have you someone outside of the family scope to talk to so you have a place to dump all your emotions and then have someone to teach you to, to constructively then deal with those and there was a group she says there was a group of like seven kids she goes and they all looked at me and said your mother actually offered that to you and she's like, um, yeah. <laughs> so I think that while we are making strides, that it's not enough. But I also think that as we go along, if we can just encourage our sphere of influence and let them know that this is okay, I think that that, that will then make it easier to speak about it and it, and it loses its stigma. Um, Shanka, can I jump in from Kelly's comments? Could I do that? Yes, Dr. Brania and then um, Tara. Okay, Andale is from South Africa, and that connects with, the panelists know this, with cultural competency. And so I felt was my responsibility to mention that, because in terms of cultural competency, was we must know what's going on outside of the United States. And with the mention, with active listen, with the mention of workplace, we could come back in the, in the United States and talk about workplace violence, which is one of the things I do um, in terms of mitigating workplace violence. So now let's go back to South Africa. South Africa has its own peculiar types of issues that Andale was intimating about but may not be able to talk about. And so in terms of what we use in the dominant culture in the U.S., it doesn't apply for workplace um, things going on in South Africa. I just need to say that as a disclaimer so that she feels supported. Thank you. Thank you. Tara? Yeah, I would be, I know you're closing down the room. So, but yeah, I love, I just want to piggyback on something you said about the, the using, uh, using the word or the term bully instead of Thank abuser. You. I think this is really, really important. We should, you know, I think the whole stigma that's attached to mental uh, health and mental wellness is really because of the, the term or the word that we use mental. I think our verbiage needs to change. There's actually studies on the words that we use that carry a frequency. And I think there's so much shame and guilt uh, attached to that, like Dr. Marshall uh, was speaking of. And so I think it's really important that we use critical thinking and words matter. 
they do. I work with young boys and girls in elementary school, teaching them confidence and courage and resiliency and curiosity, all the good stuff that they don't teach them. And words matter to these children. So I love that you said that. Thank you so much, Shankar, for having me here with all these incredible human beings. I know you're closing down the room. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Andil, I know you want to react. Um, not so much, um, but I think I, I, I find my answers in all the comments that have been shared right now. Um, but one that stood out for me is, um, I'm not sure between um, Kelly or Brainia, but I, it, it has to do with something, I mean, it has to do with self-advocacy and advocacy, where you are the first one to speak up for yourself. So for me, that um, interprets as, as, as in this way that once you start speaking up for yourself, once you start um, um, being the one to teach other people, other people will learn from you on how to handle this um this topic other people will know what it means from you so you will be the first one to go out there and teach them and show them and every everyone else will learn as we go on so i think i appreciate that so much thank you for the for the answers absolutely and um any final thoughts before we do close down i want to remind everyone it is closing this room doesn't mean that you cannot stay connected to the people that re you resonated with. There's definitely a, a lot of gems and a lot of things. And I think if you want to continue the conversation, follow each other, send each other a message and, and definitely do that. So I'm going to give um, Andrea and Dr. Packard the opportunity to give final remarks, remarks if they have those. Um, what can I say in 30 seconds? It's been a pleasure. I am, I'm so grateful. I think I got to get out of my head and we all have to hear other people because there's no single one individual who can speak for everyone else. You just have to hear perspective. And if you've learned nothing else, then just keep striving to know that, I guess, what's really going on and don't doubt yourself and don't even gaslight yourself like yeah dr packard anything for you no that's it this has been great thank you so much